0: This is Local Switchboard NYC, a women-led audio collective. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jordan Gaspore. We're here to bring you news on a human scale. News that reminds us that big stories often start small. News that keeps us connected. On this program, years later that a journalist
1: it together that Stephen, the homeless man on the bench on the Upper West Side, was actually Neil Harris, this missing 29-year-old from Long Island. And she was able to identify him and she was able to reach out to the mother and she was able to say, I found your son.
2: And as much as we have the dancing skeletons that go first because they remind us, those having just recently died, how precious life is and we have to dance while we can. All the people who are no longer with us. And the names, all those who we lost to COVID, all those we lost to AIDS, all those we lost to 9-11, and then these thousands of people whose names, including Lou's name, everybody is there.
0: That's all coming up on Local Switchboard NYC. Three years ago, in the midst of the pandemic, everyone was exploring ways in which the things we valued, family, friends, and the culture at large could be kept alive. How would we see those we loved? And how would we see things we loved? Among those things we cherished were seasonal rituals. In New York, one of the most glorious of those is the Halloween parade, founded 50 years ago by mask maker and puppeteer Ralph Lee. The parade started as a neighborhood walk with Lee's children, but eventually grew to a vast community pageant. During lockdown, we reached out to producer Jeannie Fleming, who took over the organization of the parade when Lee retired and has shaped it for the last 43 years. Her marvelous stories framed the piece we did in October 2020. But with the holiday and the parade's 50th coming up, we also wanted to hear from her today. Local switchboard Sarah Montague spoke with Fleming.
2: It's a really fascinating year. My thoughts about the parade are very different this year. I think more intense. The grand marshal of the parade this year is Laurie Anderson, but posthumously it's Lou Reed. Lou wrote a song about the Halloween parade in which he remembers all of those who died of AIDS, who he used to see at the parade. And that song has been very significant for me because of course I knew everyone he mentions. and um. I didn't know who was going to be the grand marshal. I feel this year is so difficult in New York City, the world, the theme is upside down, inside out. I mean, it just comes up over and over again. And I was at Mikhail Brushnikov's 75th birthday party, and there was Laurie Anderson. And she started talking, and I thought, Oh my God, she's talking about everything I'm thinking about. It was really funny how I got her to come because I was like, well, how am I ever going to get Laurie Anderson? I mean, you know, so I looked up who her management was and I found that it was the same people who managed my friend, Machine Dazzle. Machine is a costume designer genius in New York. And so I called Machine and I said, do you know Laurie Anderson? He said, well, not matter, but... I don't really know her. You should talk to Linda, who is the head of the agency that represents her. And I thought, oh, boy, this is going to turn into money and, you know, and all that. He introduced us by email and she wrote me back and she said, send me a letter. I'm flying to London in the morning and I'll hand it to her. I'm going to see her there. So I wrote a letter. She handed it to her. Laurie texted me and said, I'll do it. Amazing. So then that began the whole process of, well, what are we going to do? And, you know, Lou had to be a part of it. He died 10 years ago on October 27th. So Lou, it turns out, wrote a piece for drones and she has all of his guitars. So what's going to happen on her float is Lou's voice is going to be there in that Stuart Herwood, who is kind of considered Lou's white right arm, as they, the way they talk about him, he's gonna be playing Lou's guitars live, along with this drone sound. Laurie is gonna be on the floor playing her fiddle. What's really interesting is that song that Lou Reed sings, even though it's all about people who are gone, the refrain of it is, I'll see you next year at the parade. So what he's saying is, your spirits are always going to be there, and I'll see them. And for Laurie, who really believes in the world, the veil being the thinnest, she feels that Lou was talking to her all the time. She realized that Lou was kind of telling her that he'd see her at the parade, that they were kind of going to get together on Halloween this year, that he would finally see her at the parade. So now we have Lou's spirit. We have Lou saying... See you next year, even though these are people who will only be there in spirit. And it occurred to me that what we should do is call up all the spirits of all the people who've been associated with the parade, who we know have been involved in the parade, and let's call them up. So I asked all of the members of my staff, people who've been involved in the parade for years, I asked them if they would send me the names of people that they would like to be on what now are going to be called the spirit poles that will surround her float. And I've gotten thousands of names. They are all going to be on the spirit poles, their names, so that as we go along in the parade, we'll be calling their spirits to walk with us. And Laurie loved this idea. She loved it. It's beautiful. And they're like Tibetan prayer flags in that sense of they blow in the wind and they call up the spirits. But then I went up to see her at Hudson Hall. She performed at a thing for Upstate Films, a gala. And there's Laurie, and she's doing a piece called Everything is Listening. And what I came to understand about her as I watched her, because we were working on her costume, what are you going to be? What are you going to look like? What are you going to wear? And I realized as I was watching her that she's the one who hears all the sounds in the world. And I began thinking of the goddess Kuan Yin. And Kuan Yin is the goddess who hears the cries of the world. She hears all the sounds in the world. So I told Lori, you're not the grand marshal, which of course she like, shuns. She doesn't want to be that. You know, like, oh, don't put my name on. you know. I said, Lori, what you are is you're the officiant of a ritual. And you're the embodiment of Kuan Yin, she who hears the sounds of the world and you're calling forth all these spirits. And right away she understood exactly what I was talking about. So that is really the spirit in which I'm doing the parade this year. As much as we have the dancing skeletons that go first because they remind us, those having just recently died, how precious life is and we have to dance while we can, all the people who are no longer with us and the names, all those who we lost to COVID, all those we lost to AIDS, all those we lost to 9-11 and then this thousands of people whose names, including Lou's name, everybody is there and She is basically the officiant of this amazing ritual, which is what the purest notion of Halloween is about. That's really what the spirit of Halloween is about. It's the night when those who have passed walk again. They come out if you call their spirits. And so that's what we're doing. And then I've asked a band called Young Fellas is coming up from New Orleans, they're a second line band. So they play for all the funerals down there. And so, on the one hand, the parade will be joyful. There'll be many sounds of joy in the parade, but it's also serious. It's also a serious ritual.
0: That was Jeannie Fleming, always the guiding spirit of the Village Halloween Parade. The spirits being celebrated at the Village Halloween Parade and the skeletons representing them with eerie solemnity are poetic and performative. But a new podcast from the audio documentary project Radio Diaries honors real bones and another group of memories. The team launched Stories from Heart Island on September 28th. Sarah Montague spoke with managing producer Nellie Gillis. Many, many years ago,
1: Well before this project actually started, many of the staff lived in New York and knew about the fact that there was an island off the coast of the Bronx that had very limited access that was the largest public cemetery in the country. And we always wondered about it. We had done some research about other islands, thinking maybe we would do a series about all the islands in New York and the different histories, and that didn't really pan out. And then we thought, Why don't we dive into one and see if we can find the stories behind these people here? And we initially thought it was going to be just obituaries, and those ended up being a little flat. And also, the more we dove into some of these stories, the more elaborate they became, the more they became mysteries, documenting people's journeys, the fact is, a lot of people at Heart Island are buried there and their families don't know it. So, that became a really important aspect of the series to dive into. So, then we just started to chase more and more of them. And we partnered with a database, a, a nonprofit called the Heart Island Project. And we have really dug into, I would say, hundreds of stories, only coming out with seven <laughs> that are actually making up this series. But there are so, so many more that we didn't end up actually creating.
3: It sounded a little from the description on the website like a kind of potter's field. How- How did so many people come to be discarded?
1: Yeah, it is what many people call a potter's field. It's a tiny strip of land off the Bronx, and it has no bridge to it. You can't get there unless you take the ferry that the city provides. You can only go there now if you are related or close to someone who's buried there, so it's not yet completely open to the public. It is mass graves. The people who are buried there are buried there for a lot of different reasons, but some of the main ones are that the city could not identify them or the city identified them and could not find any family, or the family couldn't afford a private burial or didn't want a private burial, so identified the body but decided they weren't gonna take it. And then the city does what it does. It puts the bodies in pine coffins and it takes them out to this island on barges and it digs trenches and it buries about 150 people in each mass grave. And then the grave is marked only by a post that has a number on it. And they keep pretty good records on where everybody is, but there are no headstones or names that recognize what each individual grave is. So it's really interesting, when you go, you are standing at a plot and that plot represents 150 people so I was standing at plot 201 and I was looking for the grave of Angel Garcia but I was standing at also the graves of 149 other people who were buried alongside him and on top of him and underneath him and that has a really sort of eerie but also powerful moment when you're standing there and you realize how many other people you're there visiting without even knowing who they are.
3: If you were to take a religious cast on this, you would imagine all the souls rising together.
1: All the souls rising together, and we had a lot of people who did visit their loved ones for the very first time as part of this series. Uh, We brought them to New York, we brought them up from Florida, we brought them from upstate, we brought them from Virginia, and they had really different reactions, and many of them were actually quite positive. It is a, a very beautiful place the Parks Department now controls it and they are working on it. So the Tartan of Corrections had it for a long time and it was not very well taken care of but now it's really taking a turn for the better, I think, and people really found it moving to be there. But as you say, there was some concern from some family members of you know, are the other people that my loved one is buried with, are are they nice? Are they getting along down there? You know, they're such in close quarters and if you do believe in some kind of afterlife, who are you buried with, that was a thought that plagued a lot of our family members' brains, yeah.
3: A sort of Lincoln in the Bardo. Exactly. How did you come to find the group of people you were able to frame stories around?
1: So in a couple different ways. The leading way was there is this wonderful nonprofit called the Heart Island Project that is run by this woman, Melinda Hunt, and she has spent decades of her life trying to get Heart Island more attention, to change the policies around it, to change the stigma around it many of the records for the 1 million people buried on Hart Island, many of the records were burned and destroyed in a fire accidentally. But we do have records going back to maybe the 1950s and the 1970s. And so she was able to put a lot of that online. And then she has been reaching out and then people have been reaching out to her as they find their loved ones buried there and they will add stories to this collective website and this database. It's beautifully done. So we reached out to some people that had volunteered their stories there We had also dug up a ton of journalism and local articles about people who had died and been buried on Hard Island and then chased down the family after that. So a lot of different ways. And then there were some more public ones. There are two people in our series that were quite well known. A writer from the early 20th century who was buried there. And then a musical composer who chose to be buried on island. And that's a very different story than all the rest because it really shifts the perspective of the place if it's not a place just for you know, the indigent and the people who are forgotten about. But it's a place that Somebody chose as their final resting place. I know you're going to give me a clip. Can you set that up? For of me? course. So in the first story of this series, we have a story about a, a man named Neil Harris, and he was from Long Island, and he went missing when he was 29. He struggled with mental illness, and several years later the community around the Upper West Side had known this man who was living on a bench and he called himself Stephen. And when he died, everyone identified him as Stephen. He was buried on Hart Island. They couldn't find an identity for him. And it was years later that a journalist put it together that Stephen, the homeless man on the bench on the Upper West Side, was actually Neil Harris, this missing 29-year-old from Long Island. And she was able to identify him and she was able to reach out to the mother and she was able to say, I found your son. So it's a really moving story of both a community in the Upper West Side that sort of took care of this man. They gave him food. They gave him clothes. They did what they could. And then also a mother who was missing him and searching for him. And then the one fluke of this miracle connection of this journalist who found his picture in the missing persons flyer and recognized him.
3: And then one day, he's like, I want you to drop me off at the Inwood train station. And he would sleep on the platform. When we pulled into the parking lot of the Inwood train station, he just got out, took his little backpack, threw it over his shoulder. Walked away, never looked behind. And there was a cop sitting in the parking field there and I got out and I said, that's my son and he wants to be here, he wants to be homeless. And the cop said to me, and it's his right. He said, but we'll check up on him. So I figured, okay, so I'll go every week. And the first time we went down, we looked and we did see him, but he walked away from me. And I was like, Neil, wait, I just wanna give you money. And he stopped, took the money, and walked away. And that was the last time I saw him.
4: My name is Joy Bergman, and I live on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And this is my dog, JJ. JJ, let's go. Every day, JJ and I are in Riverside Park. This is the bench where we would see Stephen in all weather, all times of day. He'd always be sitting bolt upright on the bench, big canvas rucksack at his feet, same clothes, same facial expression. Yeah, JJ, you remember Steven.
3: I'm Billy, Billy Healy. I used to sit up at the corner there, feed my little birds. And that's when I talked to him and he told me that he was from Long Island and his name was Steven. It was like pulling teeth to get him to say anything. He was not a talker. He didn't seem to trust people much. At the time I still wasn't sure if he was sleeping in the park because I see him sitting on the bench every day with his knapsack but I never saw him sleep. So I called the outreach for the homeless. They went to talk to him and they told me Stephen doesn't want any help.
4: It was always... Kind of reassuring to see him because he was such a big guy and so gentle in his presence he was a constant presence in the park but a mysterious one I couldn't quite figure out where he was from what he was doing here and why he just never left
3: neil harris was last seen in Inwood, new york on december 12 2014 he was last seen wearing a tan carhartt jacket Black hoodie, blue jeans, tan work boots, and a backpack. If you have seen or know Neil's whereabouts, this was a missing persons flyer that we made. And that went out every week. Every week like clockwork on Mondays. Monday morning on every social media platform that I could get my hands on, it went out. And then a year went by. Nothing. Nothing. And then another year, still nothing.
1: There was a moment in which the mom thought she would exhume him from Heart Island when she finally found out he was there. And she thought, I don't want him to be there. And then she went and she changed her mind. And she said, I actually think that this is the right place for him to stay.
4: Now, you are best known for helping people tell their own stories, being the agent of their own mm-hmm. stories.
3: Does this feel like a different version of that?
1: It's sort of hybrid, I'd call it. So, we do, we help people tell their own stories and their own histories. We also do full on histories. And this one, we did both. We gave some people tape recorders for this series, so a couple people. As you'll hear, recorded phone calls with their parents and their loved ones. They visited people they'd never met before. They traveled to Heart Island. Some of that we were there for, some of it we weren't. And so we did train them to do a lot of their own reporting. It's much less labor intensive than to do a full diary. The full diary takes months and months, if not years, to train people how to document their lives. So this was kind of a hybrid way of doing it. We did some interviews and we recorded some stuff ourselves, and then we gave them tape recorders when the story warranted it. When we wanted them to go out and do their own reporting.
4: What's made you happiest about this project?
1: I think that so much of the stories that we often do, we produce in studios and we sit in uh, offices and we sit on our computers (laughs) and then it goes out into the world and we don't always get to necessarily visit places for the very first time. And Heart Island, to be there and to be there with the families on the first time they went, to be there in a place that other people can't go, that this is a place that the public does not have access to. It felt really special to be able to say, we're gonna let you know what it feels like and sounds like for the loved ones to visit this spot that is so shrouded and." anonymity and darkness and has a bad reputation and to shift that perspective through tape to actually be in the field and recording there it's my favorite tape is people standing there and talking about how differently they feel now that they're standing on the soil and on the grass
0: on this island stories from heart island will be released weekly through november i'm jordan goss and you've been listening to local switchboard nyc Our team is, host, me, Jordan Gosporé, and reporters, Sarah Montague, Betsy Lakin, and Heather Chin. You're part of our neighborhood now. So if there's a local story you think is important, let us know at localswitchboard at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.